This podcast is sponsored by Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based out of Tacoma, Washington. Traction Capital focuses on acquiring businesses based in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. For more information, please visit TractionCP.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and investors to learn how to acquire and run companies. For more information, visit alexbridgman.com. My guest today is Greg Geronimus. Greg and his partner, David Rosner, founded a search fund named Footbridge Partners after their time at Harvard Business School and acquired a tour operating company called Smart Tours. Four years later, they sold Smart Tours to a private equity firm and raised a fund to invest in other searchers. Greg and David take a more concentrated approach and aim to invest in eight to 10 searchers rather than dozens to spend more time and energy with each individual searcher. Greg and I discuss their search fund days, investing in search funds, and how the model has evolved and may continue to change. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did. Do you want to start by walking through your background and how you got into the idea of doing a search fund and then your actual search fund and what you've been up to now? My experience with search funds started in 2011, uh, in the middle of my time at at Harvard Business School. Uh, prior to Harvard Business School, I had worked in finance in a private equity arm or one of the private equity arms at Goldman Sachs. Really learned a lot, had a great experience, but always had a desire um, to do something more entrepreneurial. That was the impetus for my going to business school. And while I was at business school, I played around with a few different startup ideas of the more traditional variety. None of them excited me all that much. And then I uh, stumbled upon the search fund concept towards the end of my my first year of school and the beginning of my second year, uh, around the same time that my section mate, friend, uh, eventual and current business partner, David Rosner, also learned of the search fund concept. Uh, we started exploring it together as just an idea um, and ultimately decided that not only did we love the idea of doing a search, but we also uh, love the idea of, of partnering together. Uh, and mind you, and I know you've covered the search fund model in other, other episodes of the podcast, but uh, this is, you know, approximately nine years ago and the search fund model was, uh, you know, very different then, uh, certainly, uh, significantly less popular. Uh, if you pulled my MBA class, uh, just nine years ago, I imagine only a small fraction would have even known what a search fund was. And now if you pull a current class at you know, any, any number of business schools across the country in the U S at least, the overwhelming majority would be familiar and probably quite familiar with the search fund concept. Uh, so during our second year of business school, we uh, started exploring uh, raising search capital, which is basically the seed seed capital that you use to fund up to two years of searching for a business to buy, then operate, uh, and then ultimately exit. We decided to you know start with the raising capital from our network. So we went to people we had worked with before, uh, old bosses, people just part of our broader network from from HBS, from college, um, and from our our time growing up in New York City for me and Philadelphia for David. And we were able to put together a, 
a really strong investor group to support us in our search uh, that we launched pretty much you know the day we graduated in late May 2012. You know, we I would say we were either lucky or well prepared or some combination of the two, but we saw a substantial amount of deal flow from the outset. Our sourcing strategies range from heavy direct proprietary outreach to broker outreach, broker by broker, I mean business brokers or any you know form of a business intermediary, also called M&A advisors, investment bankers, uh, and there are a couple other names as well. But uh, uh, and then I think the third the third category was just old fashioned networking, which I think is often overlooked or or seen as inefficient or suboptimal uh, for a lot of people that are looking to buy a, a small business, whether through a search fund model or or not. But I, I still think there's something to be said for. Uh, just sitting down with people and, and developing relationships with accountants and lawyers and commercial bankers and insurance brokers, wealth managers, just getting to know them and, and developing a rapport, um, and being top, you know, ultimately being top of mind for any, for any clients of theirs that they have that might be thinking about selling a business. Um, so we, we had a robust pipeline from the, from the very beginning. Uh, we were fairly, uh, open from an industry perspective, we were pursuing certain certain themes, <clears throat> but also were committed to being relatively opportunistic. It was through a networking event in Midtown Manhattan where we met a commercial banker from Capital One at the time. This commercial banker was, I think, it must have been in his seventies, and and he told us that uh, his high school buddy, my now high school. If he's in the seventies, high school was, you know, 50 some odd years before was representing or was the accountant for, I should say, a company called Smart Tours that was interested in, in potentially selling. Uh, Smart Tours is a tour operator company that provides uh, value oriented vacation packages to exotic destinations all over the world. Uh, think bus tours, group tours where, uh, you've got, 25, 30 unrelated people traveling together, seeing the sights, um, hopping on and hopping off a bus uh, as you're guided around by an experienced guide. Uh, and really a model of travel that's pretty old fashioned, um, but also uh, you know still resonates particularly with the baby boomer and active senior demographic. So at first glance, you know, travel was not something that we were necessarily interested in. In fact, it was explicitly something that we did not want to pursue. But uh, the commercial banker made a case for us to at least take a meeting with the accountant, and it was easy enough to do so. And we, uh, a couple of days after that event in Midtown Manhattan, we sat down with the accountant for Smart Tours. He gave us his pitch on the business. Mind you, he was not formally engaged to sell the business in any way. He was just doing a favor for his longtime client, the founder and and then CEO of Smart Tours. You know, he explained that he had uh, developed a, an idea for what a, the deal should look like. So he basically concocted this purchase price that he thought was reasonable and this valuation structure that he thought was or, and this transaction structure, I should say, that he thought was optimal. And he presented to presented it to us without the consent of his client. We decided to take it under consideration and that the proposed transaction structure was interesting enough for us to, to take the next step, which was a meeting with the seller. That took place in a 
in a coffee shop in, in Midtown Manhattan, a few blocks from where the Smart, Smart Tours headquarters was then located. That was the beginning of a several month courtship exclusivity, eventual exclusivity diligence and ultimately closing process where we did become pretty enamored with the company, uh, saw a lot of strengths that, that we didn't sort of necessarily think of from the outside looking in. It, it turned out that the business, despite being B2C travel, had been incredibly resilient during post 9-11, as well as during the 2009 downturn. It had just this sort of fierce cult following of customers that just kept coming back almost automatically on repeat, it seemed. And, and it operated in this large growing highly fragmented industry with a, a lot of opportunities to take share. It also had some, you know, incredible cash flow characteristics that are, that are really hard to replicate or find elsewhere, uh, namely negative working capital and no capex. So we were able to, to get the deal done. Uh, we, we closed the deal in October 2013, uh, which was a year and change after we had launched our search just following graduation from business school. We spent the first year or so really focused on the transition. The business was really sort of operated. There was a, it was a great team in place, but it was a small team. And most decisions really funneled through the founder and seller. Uh, and so we needed to make sure that we could soak up as much information from him as possible before he transitioned on to spend most of his time quite literally on the beach. And so we did that <clears throat> and did that successfully. We then focused on, you know, what does the business need to really s scale and accelerate? And it was clear to us that that was systems and people. In order to really take it to the next level, we needed to improve both. So we we took a business that was paper and Microsoft Excel based and made it and turned it into a business powered by a real uh, cloud-based software system that could just give us much more insight into the company and our customers and allow us to do everything more efficiently and more effectively. Uh, and then we started expanding the team and bringing on some some really good new people that could help us grow. Following that, we really put our foot on the gas and started to see some significant acceleration and then ultimately received an unsolicited offer from a private equity buyer. This was in early 2017. We thought it was an attractive offer, but we were committed to not just negotiating with one party. So we took the offer, showed it to a few investment bankers that we knew who had covered the space and uh, decided to work with one of them, a group named Fidus Partners, to run a process, uh, a sale process that really sort of kicked off in May, June 2017. And we ultimately sold to a private equity firm by the name of Summit Park in October 2017. So more or less exactly four years after we acquired the business. Part of the sale was an agreement that we would stay for two years uh, and help transition the business to a our, our replacements and help them just put them in the best possible position to be successful. We ended up uh, leaving the business uh, formally in July 2019. But during our transition out of the company, we started investing personally in search deals and in other searchers. Uh, we had we had long mentored and coached and, and just loved uh, helping searchers in any way we could, um, but we didn't have the capital to really invest and support them in, in that capacity. 
And we just, uh, both David and I loved, uh, the opportunity to, to invest behind, uh, such incredible entrepreneurs and in opportunities that were so interesting. Uh, and, you know, still it was clear to us that there's just tremendous, uh, there was tremendous efficiency and in the inefficiency, I should say, in the, in the lower, lower middle market where searchers um, operate. As we invested more and more in different searches in a personal capacity, I think we noticed that there was less of an intimate relationship between, by and large, and this is a generalization, there are exceptions to every rule, but by and large, less of an intimate relationship between searchers and their investors, just given the growth of the category and how many, how, how big most investors' portfolios have gotten. So many investors have, and funds, family offices, individuals have 30, 40, 50 plus portfolio companies, um, some with many more than that, as, and 30, 40, 50 plus active searchers. And naturally, your ability to be engaged with you know dozens and dozens and dozens of entrepreneurs simultaneously is limited. Uh, and so uh, David and I became convinced that there was an opportunity for us to develop a more focused search fund investing model where we could work with a smaller number of searchers each year, three or four searchers or search teams, and end up with a portfolio of eight, nine, or 10 portfolio companies. And just as a general rule, be have much more bandwidth to be much more engaged than would be possible if you had a portfolio, many multiples of that size. And when we left Smart Tours, we approached prior investors, uh, as well as other people that we knew who might be interested in investing in both the search fund world or, or simply the lower, lower middle market. And we were really encouraged by the, re- the initial response. There was a tremendous amount of interest in both the search fund asset class, uh, and, and even more broadly than that, the, the idea of just going further and further down market in the private equity landscape where a lot of people see just simply better risk-adjusted opportunities to invest capital um, because it's just so much less efficient than the traditional private equity landscape. So we started our fundraising process formally in September, um, raised uh, raised enough capital to last us uh, several years worth of investing, and uh, we started uh, backing searchers. We uh, acquired our first company with the searcher uh, a few months ago, and we're really off to the races. Since you did your search, how did you think about doing the traditional model versus the self-funded model? And then since that search in 2011 up till today, how has the search fund model evolved? And is there further evolution that you would like to see the search fund model take? I think I had heard of back in 2011, I had heard of just one person who had done the self-funded model. And it was this guy, I think his name was Pat Dickinson. I'm pretty sure it was. He was this cowboy that, you know, I think he took his, you know, McKinsey signing bonus and rolled it into and, and just used it to fund the first couple months of his search. Not sure what happened there, although I would with, with with respect to McKinsey, although I, I know that he had a, a wildly successful outcome. Needless to say, I didn't didn't think of myself quite in the same sort of ca- cowboy category and didn't even think of, of going self-funded. It just, it, it wasn't really a path that that was, you know, widely considered. And so, 
you know, perhaps would have made come to a different decision if I had graduated from business school within the last couple of years. But there really was were just fewer options. There was less awareness about search. There were fewer variations of search back in 2011. And I think, you know, one of the biggest you asked about changes. Um, one of the biggest changes is just the greater number of opportunities to pursue entrepreneurship through acquisition broadly. So it's not just self-funded versus traditionally funded. There are variations on traditionally funded. There are accelerators. There are hybrid models like the one that Footbridge has that's somewhere between traditional and accelerator. There are family offices that will, you know, do be the sole source of capital. And I'm sure I'm missing a few, but the, the broader point is that there are more flavors of, e- of entrepreneurship through acquisition, which is great because it allows more people to go down the path. And another massive change in the last nine years is greater access to information, greater awareness of, of uh, access to information broadly. I guess that's a global uh, trend, but also it, certainly with respect to search funds and greater awareness by virtue of business more more and more business school programs offering search fund classes uh, i think there was there used to be in until 2012 there was one at stanford and now uh, there are probably close to 10 across the country uh, and and a few internationally as well which is wonderful i'd say well, you know one of the biggest challenges today versus almost 10 years ago is just, I mentioned this earlier with investors' portfolios getting larger and larger. There is certainly less intimacy in the relationship between searchers and investors. I think less of a partnership feel by and large, of course, with exceptions. And and so I do think that's why there are alternative models like Footbridge, the, the Footbridge model, like accelerators that have emerged in response to that. Are there other types of models that, you know, would be nice to see over time? Yes. I, I don't know what those, you know, future models entail, but I'm confident that there will be continued innovation in the search space. And I think that's wonderful. That will attract more people to come into the category because I'm sure others will find some unmet need or some void in the search fund ecosystem that they can, where they can create an opportunity for, to bring more people into the fold. In terms of the new models, is there is there something that you wish perhaps had been different about your search fund back in 2011 that you know is perhaps more possible to change today than it was then? Well, there are a lot of things that are more that are, that are more possible today. One facet of our search that I didn't mention was that you know we were we were geographically constrained. We we had to for family reasons had to buy something in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area and. And that was a bit of an uphill battle in terms of raising search capital at the time. There's a conventional wisdom in search that exists today as well, that better to do a nationwide search than to focus on a particular geography. Although there has been, you know, there's been some movement in that view. And there is certainly more openness today than there was in 2011, 2012 for geographic searches. And I think that's a positive thing because there a conversation for another another podcast, but there are a lot of there are a lot of advantages to being somewhat regionally focused and in, in your sourcing efforts. You know, I think there's more openness today in terms of uh, relative to 2011, 2012, 2013, in terms of the the industries that that searchers can target that investors will will back. You know, uh, the business that we bought, Smart Tours, is a is a good example of that. 
It was very outside of the box from a search perspective, a B2C travel company. And that presented a challenge in terms of raising investor capital. We were able to, to get it done, but it, it was certainly a roadblock. And I think today there's just more openness with business in terms of businesses that are outside of the very traditional B2B services, recurring revenue type companies. Not to mention that there's, I think there's, there's much more of an interest in backing searchers to acquire SaaS businesses uh, and buy, you know, software businesses and and pay up for those types of assets because they typically require a, a pretty healthy multiple, um, often a multiple of revenue, not even of cash flow. There's a split within the community as to whether or not that's a good idea, but there are, there are a lot of people that are interested in 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 backing those types of deals. So there there are just a lot more options today, and I think. You know, some of the resistance that we face, both with respect to the geographic focus and then ultimately a you know, B2C business, uh, would be much more limited uh, in this environment. Are there certain industries or business models that you at Footbridge encourage your searchers to pursue? We like to, for searchers to find an industry and a business that is really well suited to them. And that doesn't mean we don't have our own biases. And even though we bought something in B2C, we, we, we love B2B recurring revenue services businesses. Uh, we love healthcare services, but we're open to, you know, less traditional industries. We're open to businesses that have a consumer element. And we, we try to, to impress upon our, the searchers that we work with to, to keep an open mind and to be opportunistic. We also believe that having some industry themes that you go after is really helpful, but at the same time, don't close your eyes to an opportunity that might be interesting, even if it falls outside of your specific area of focus. Are you seeing more searchers try direct outreach versus brokers, or how how does that mix usually come about? And then what sorts of success rates are you seeing in both? The the split that everybody at least says they're going to pursue is 80% proprietary, 20% broker. Uh, that seems to make its way into every PPM that I see. Not sure how that was arrived at, but I do think that that does seem to play out in practice as well, not just as part of the initial marketing materials, but I think that's a reasonable description of how people allocate their time. I will say that we see success through both channels. There are some people that feel like it has they have to find a purely proprietary deal and there's something there's something wrong if they're not able to do that or if they have to buy something through a broker. But what we say all the time at Footbridge is that there can be phenomenal opportunities through brokers. There are many brokers out there that are not necessarily in the business of, you know, running really robust competitive auction processes. There are some brokers that are really just in the volume game and they'll, they'll take a business, they'll slap a, a listing purchase price on it. And, you know, whoever comes and gets it, gets it. There are definitely are people in the, in the search fund world who underappreciate some of the opportunity that you can find through broker, the broker channel. Particularly if some, if a seller's engaged a broker, that means that they're actually interested in selling. Whereas when you reach out on a proprietary basis, it's really a shot in the dark. And, you know, maybe, you know, one in, in a couple hundred of people that you actually reach out to is remotely interested in selling. Perhaps, perhaps that's different in this coronavirus environment, but by and large, I think that's true. And it's not just, 
you know, I mentioned with respect to our our search with the first iteration of Footbridge back in in 2012, 2013, but we also did a lot of old-fashioned networking and, and saw a lot of deal flow that way. So I, I would put that into a maybe that maybe you can put that under the proprietary category. I, I think it deserves its own uh, mention and its own its own category is sort of a networking approach to to sourcing. So on the outreach side, what are some unique or creative ways you've seen searchers go with the direct outreach? Have you seen direct mailers and other different ideas? Uh, there's there's so much creativity, which is great. Um, yes, you see some direct mail. You see some old-fashioned cold calling. You see you see a lot of email outreach and increasing sophistication in terms of the nature of email outreach, really leveraging some of the tools out there where you can create really sophisticated, automated uh, marketing campaigns uh, and utilize some of the best practices of real businesses, I would say, in, in the context of a search. So that's great. You know, I think there's been a lot of creativity recently, five or six weeks of the coronavirus era, uh, where searchers are having to rethink, you know, how do you source today, given in some ways the, the country's both shut down and almost on a war footing, it seems a little bit tone deaf to just reach out and say, pretend like nothing's going on and just say, hey, I want to buy your business. A lot of searchers have taken a more consultative approach to sourcing. And by that, I mean, they'll reach out, offer resources to be helpful to small business owners, offer to chat and and advise and and guide them through this difficult time as a as a way to build a relationship, um, as opposed to sending a transactional mailer or, or email, uh, taking a, an interesting and different tact to ultimately building a pipeline, but s- starting with building a relationship. And I, I think some of the tactics that people are are coming up with during this really bizarre and tragic time period is, I think, will actually inform some sourcing efforts going forward. I think people will use some of these strategies even when we're on the other side of this coronavirus mess. How do you see some of those strategies hanging on once this mess is settled? You know, I think this this idea of of your initial outreach being a bit more consultative as opposed to transactional, I think I could see that sticking. You know, if you think about if you've got a two-year window, you know, maybe even two and a half years, a lot of searchers will budget for some extra time. If you have two and a half years to search, you could argue that you're better off starting your sourcing efforts with more sort of tactful, graceful relationship building, as opposed to more of the blunt force, you know, whack somebody over the head and say, you know, I want to buy your business. I think you sort of need to do it that way in this environment. I, I just think it's, again, I think it's tone deaf not to, but but I think there's an argument for continuing that type of strategy early in search, develop a relationship. Yeah, don't hide the ball. Don't pretend like you're not ultimately interested in buying their business, but sort of table that for the first interaction and just to try to develop a little bit of a rapport. You know, you, there's some, I, you know, you have to be careful with that because that can be a real time suck. But I think there's some elements of that strategy that, that could be carried forward to a more normal environment. You said your model is kind of a hybrid between the traditional and accelerator model. So at Footbridge, what resources and help can you provide searchers? That's a great question. Uh, and it's really sort of the uh, we consider it and see it as a full service offering. So, and it starts, you know, even during the fundraising process. So the searchers that we've backed, we often get to know them well before they've put together their PPM, well before they start to fundraise. We develop a, a really strong rapport and relationship 
typically agree to partner where Footbridge is, is a, is a large sort of anchor investor before they, you know, quote unquote, go to market and send around their PPM to a bunch of investors. And we're, you know, our collaboration starts with feedback on the PPM to, you know, talking through investor composition to which, which industries to focus on, you know, navigating different elements of the fundraise through, you know, getting set up for the search, you know, selecting a, a CRM, setting up that CRM, developing company lists. We've got some resources on our end that, that we share and um, some, some lists that, that we've developed and cultivated that we share with, with searchers. We continue to source deals in our own right. We send those, we send, it's, the deals are not for us, uh, for our consumption. They're, everything we do is, is for our searchers. So we'll send deals to searchers as well. And given that we have relatively few searchers at a time, we're able to actually distribute a decent number of deals to each, uh, search team. We spend a lot of time with searchers on prioritizing within a pipeline. So searchers will all, will, you know, do their outreach and they'll develop you know, a bunch of interesting prospects. But a lot of times searchers will sort of evaluate those prospects and do the initial screens, make those go, no go decisions on whether or not to spend more time sort of in a vacuum. Uh, A lot of times they won't bring in investors during that phase. And one of the areas where I think we're most helpful is working with a searcher and saying, hey, that opportunity that you're about to dive, dive in on is, you know, it has these red flags. It seems like a dead end to us. Just a heads up for your consideration. On the flip side, there's also a question of, you know, or I think a phenomenon pretty widely known and seen in search where searchers will have this unrealistic pursuit of perfection during their first year of searching. And they'll turn down a lot of opportunities that are really, really good, but not perfect. And because of that, you know, they miss out on some opportunities that they would they would kill to do in their second year uh, of searching uh, because they they realize that it, it's just a great opportunity. It's not not going to check every box, but nothing checks every box. Giving searchers earlier on in their search the encouragement to pursue an opportunity that might be really attractive, albeit not absolutely perfect. From there, support on and guidance around when to submit an indication of interest, what to put in there, valuation range, other other information, uh, when to really dive in and, and act, do real work leading up to an LOI, what to put in the LOI, how to structure the offer, negotiate, etc. And then post LOI, you know, just a a ton of extra muscle on the diligence, process management, selecting vendors, reaching out to lender introductions, negotiating with those lenders, other introductions to uh, introductions to other equity investors to the extent that there's a likely or potential equity gap, just providing a ton of leverage all the way through close, leading up to the real fun, which is post-close and the operating of the business. And because of our focus model, we're able to commit to being on the board of every company that we invest in. And that's just being on the board and engaging sporadically or, or on a quarterly basis, but really being actively engaged in a very meaningful way, chatting with a searcher about 
what do you do on the first day? What do you say to the staff to put them at ease and get them excited to, you know, working through the 100-day plan, you know, using our networks to make introductions to for the searcher to, you know, in their industry that they're in all likelihood new, you know, they're completely new to, to spending an inordinate amount of time with, uh, with the CEO during a moment of crisis as we're doing now and in the coronavirus era and just that sort of spirit of of really active engagement continuing all the way through through the sale of the company do you encourage your searchers to not only talk to you but the other searchers within your portfolio just to share ideas back and forth or is it mostly a relationship with you and the searchers are kind of independent no i mean that's uh, and thanks for raising that yeah that's absolutely encouraged and i in some ways it sort of just happens it happens naturally, but we are also working on ways as we build out our sort of searcher group, ways to facilitate more regular and formal sharing of best practices. There's so much to be gained from talking to other searchers and searchers are great about tapping into uh, what other searchers are doing just naturally, but creating a little bit more structure around it, I think could only be beneficial. And then on your side, would you are you ever the sole sponsor for a searcher or do you think it's important to have other equity investors alongside your investment in a searcher? Our our intent is is not to be the sole sponsor. Our intent is not even to be the majority. You know, it's it's to be, you know, a lead investor. And the whole idea there is it's not about for us, it's not about control. It's strictly a matter of being able to invest enough in each company, each search and then in each company to allow us to have a more focused portfolio. So if we're gonna have a model where we spend all this time with with each searcher and and each portfolio company, and in order to do that, we need to have a smaller number than you know, just naturally, we need to invest more in, in each. And so we, we love collaborating with other investors. We love working with the, you know, the traditional search fund community. If there was some reason why a searcher was intent on only having a single source of capital, I can't imagine why that would be the case. But if that was of interest, you know, we wouldn't, we would consider it, but that's certainly not our goal and, and not what we set out to do. And then you mentioned uh, helping some of your CEOs and searchers today. How are some of the portfolio companies handling things? You said you only have, you said one portfolio company at this point. So yeah, so we have, we have our, you know, personal investments that we made before we launched, before we launched Footbridge 2. We've acquired one portfolio company through, through this, uh, the Footbridge 2 vehicle. The company is currently closed because it's a, a chain of med spas and, but is in a really healthy position, has uh, a really strong cash position, l- limited leverage and should be receiving the PPP money from the government any day now. So that forgivable loan. So, so that will help. But, you know, I know the company is in a, in a, in, you know, interestingly, despite being closed for the time being, is in a really strong position to ride ride this out for a long time if needed. But you know, the general theme. I mean, there there are very few businesses that aren't really struggling as a result of this, and it's and it's yeah, it's just it's tough. I don't I don't know if Wall Street has a great appreciation for what's going on 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 Main Street at the at this moment in time. How do you think this changes what kinds of companies searchers look for from here on out? It may be too early to to know exactly. My initial inclination is that it shouldn't change much because you know whether you think that this is a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery or some other letter-shaped recovery, a fundamentally strong a business that was fundamentally strong in 2019 will eventually be fundamentally strong again when things pick back up. Now, if you if you're 
closing on a company tomorrow or over the next couple of months, you really want to stress test it and be prepared for, you know, continued pain and a really sluggish economy, I think, for perhaps an extended period of time. But I think the the answer there is, is not, oh, don't buy that company. It's, you know, maybe get a little bit more creative in your structuring. Uh, perhaps there's a there's more of the purchase price that's moved into a contingent payment, uh, earn out or hold back that's tied to, you know, business performance, uh, more shifted into a seller note and probably a purchase price reduction. But if you're, if you say, oh, you know, everyone's working from home now, I'm going to go buy some, some competitor to some, something to do with remote work or distance learning, or you're probably not going to find a business like that at a remotely reasonable valuation. So I wouldn't suggest shifting in that direction. You know, it does, it does raise the, the question about, um, or at least I think focus the mind a little bit on the importance of recurring revenue, which is a real focus of you know, most search fund investors. But by and large, I, I, don't, I don't think it fundamentally changes over the long term what, what search fund deals get done. If you could teach a class in college about any subject you wanted, you know, business or not, what would you teach? I think I would teach about civics, the importance of, of participating in in our democracy. Maybe that maybe that belongs in middle school or high school, but not enough young people vote. So I would probably I'd probably teach something about the importance of staying engaged and being involved in our democracy. What's a belief you had early on in your career that perhaps you held really strongly that you've since changed your mind on? I think I thought that this is so cliche, but I think I thought, you know, all those people who said it's the soft skills that matter, it's the soft stuff, the culture, the team dynamic, that that's what was was really sort of the driver of a business's success or failure. I, I thought that was sort of baloney, but I like like most people with a little bit more experience and perspective realize that that's at the heart of most businesses and, and the success and does drive the success and failure of many, many companies. What's the best business you've come across? Uh, does Amazon count? Yeah, sure. <laughs> they basically control the world. So yeah, the, that would be my, my top pick. Any other ones that you've seen, at least in the search model, that maybe aren't the best, but are just really good models? I think the business called the, the 280 Group um, that was acquired by a searcher, uh, Rina Vernovskaya, in summer of 2018 it's a corporate training business that has you know really high repeat you know customer rates also has a an e-commerce sort of online training component that's incredibly scalable and fast growing and it's just a it's a great one-two punch in terms of the two business lines and she was able to, it was a inc 5000 business uh, before she bought it and she's been able to she's done a wonderful job with it Thank you very much for sharing your time. This was a really, really interesting episode. It's good to review the, the search fund space again and especially hear about how it's going today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it, Alex. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information, including show notes, transcripts, and other links, please visit alexbridgman.com.